You know, we've injected over two and a half million dollars directly into the local economy over the past six years, whether it's through other vendors we work with or material suppliers or just employees. Um, That makes a really big difference too. keeping that money local is is incredibly important. That's the voice of Jordan Rose, owner of Goodwood Nola, and he's my guest on today's episode. I can't wait for you to hear our conversation right after this quick word from our sponsor. This show is brought to you by our sponsor, Jobber. Jobber brings people and technology together by keeping jobs on track, customers happy, and your business organized. Jobber also just recently launched a new grant program, Boost by Jobber, a program providing $100,000 to 20 small local home service businesses across the U.S. and Canada. So whether you're just starting your business or you're a well-established business, you're invited to apply for a grant. Just visit boostbyjobber.com. That's boostbyjobber.com. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Jordan Rose, owner of the New Orleans-based furniture company, Goodwood Nola. Don't let the name fool you. Goodwood Nola is more than just a wood furniture company. They're a custom fabrication shop that specializes in all types of residential and commercial projects. Jordan and his 12-person shop, yep, I said it, 12 people, do all types of builds, but the one thing that stays true across the board is their commitment to quality. I talk with Jordan about how he grew his company, how he prices both for commercial and residential projects, how he manages such a large team of creative people, and how he's learned to keep his company above water, both metaphorically and, as you'll hear, physically keeps his shop from flooding in the New Orleans storms. Don't forget to bring a towel. Yeah, it was a it was a couple years ago, and you know this is one of the things about living in New Orleans is that it does flood uh, in the street all the time, and our our shop was located in a particularly precarious spot. So, you know, there were probably half a dozen times where the water would get high enough in the street that we couldn't actually leave the studio. Um, but I kept a canoe at the shop, so we did a little paddling around the block, and it was stressful for sure, but we made the best of it and we didn't really have too much damage. Uh, The water just kind of creeped in on us. And luckily we have moved to a different space. It's actually in the same building, but we're about 12 inches higher in our new space, which makes a big difference in New Orleans. I talk with a lot of furniture makers on how they run their business, but I think you might be the first to have to keep a spare canoe in your shop to paddle your employees home after the day's over. I assume after that, you keep everything in your shop on wheels, correct? Oh, absolutely. One thing we got to deal with a lot here is not only just the strong storms that come through, but also hurricane season. So we we have a hurricane plan where we actually forklift all of our bigger tools onto work tables and get them, you know, a few feet off the ground so we don't have to stress about it as much. Um, But, you know, we did just get a new big CNC machine, and that's what I'm really worried about, because that thing weighs about 5,000 pounds. You can't put that on a work table. So fingers crossed this year is going to be a little bit better for us, but you just never know. I believe that fits squarely in the joys of owning your own business category. Indeed. Speaking about owning your own business, you were actually the co-founder of this company. How did you get into furniture making? How did you get into furniture making as a business? And how did you decide to co-found a company with somebody else? 
So I never would have thought to start a furniture company. It was definitely not on my agenda for life. Uh, I worked in films for several years here in New Orleans, doing props, making props, working on set. And that was just, you know, a really hard life that I couldn't see myself doing long term. And so I decided to do a little bit more fabrication work. And I did the Road to Berlin exhibit at the World War II Museum, which is where I actually met my co-founder. And we spent about eight months doing that project, working for another company. We really saw a lot of people who were incredibly talented that were much older than us and, you know, really kind of making the same amount of money we were. And it was one of those things where just, you know, didn't really want to end up like that and be under somebody else's thumb. And we had a great opportunity to do this project for a local uh, restaurant called District Donut. And they wanted us to do their new little restaurant, which was about a 250 square foot little coffee shop. Um, we had no tools, no shop, nothing. But we said, yeah, sure, we'll do that. And while we were doing that, we had a lot of people just coming up to us while we're working on it and saying, hey, who are you guys? What are you doing? What, what is this project that you're working on? And we were like, well, we're just a couple guys at this point. And so, you know, after enough people asked, we said, you know, we should we should turn this into something. And that, I guess, is the point when you need to come up with a name, because if you're going to do business with people, they need to know who to write the checks out to. We decided on calling it Goodwood Nola, um, which I'm not sure if I would choose the same name looking back, <laughs> just because we pigeonholed ourselves a little bit, calling it Goodwood, because we do a lot more than just wood. Um, and from there, we just had projects that just kept coming in. And, you know, my co-founder was a really um, competent business person. Um, I was a really competent fabricator. So we had a really good balance of workload, which I think, I think a lot of young furniture makers struggle with is finding that balance between not only getting your projects done, but also running a business. Um, and so we were, we were partners for about five and a half years. And we recently uh, went our separate ways very amicably. Mike wanted to do other things. And, you know, I saw myself doing this long term. And that was almost a year ago. And now it's just me here at the helm trying to do my best to wrap my head around all the business side of this as well as keep my team busy. When you find somebody that complements your skill set, that is really the best of both worlds. You have two heads on the same shoulders, both giving 100% on the fabricating side, on the business side. You couldn't ask for anything more than that. I've met Mike, good head for business. It's nice that you guys got to work together. It's nice that the split was amicable, and I wish him all the success in the future. Back to talking about the company today. Now, you're a little bit modest when you talk about the amount of work that your furniture company has produced. Since 2014, you've done over 250 custom projects for both commercial and residential. And when we're talking about projects, we're not talking about a project equals one coffee table or one chair. A project for you could be an entire restaurant build out, or for residential, it could be an entire kitchen renovation. That's a lot of projects to put in, but custom commercial and custom residential are two very different things in this business. Which of those two have you found to be better for your business over the years? 100% on with that. They are completely different animals to tackle. Um, you know, I would say that I, I like both of them. They, they, have, they each have their ups and downs, right? Pros and cons. The commercial jobs are, are really great because they're, they're big jobs. They keep us busy for months at a time. Um, they're really great for our portfolio. 
Um, and you know, there's nothing more satisfying than having a drink at the bar you made. Um, but we also balance out the slow times when we don't have big commercial projects by taking on residential work, whether it be built-ins or dining tables or coffee tables. Um, and that's proved to be extremely valuable uh, since the pandemic started because, you know, for the first five years, we were doing basically restaurants and hospitality work, hotels. So we would do, you know, all the tables or the bar faces or the bar tops. But restaurants are not making money right now. So we really haven't done a restaurant in a year. But what we have seen is a huge increase in the amount of residential work we're doing. When you're working both on the commercial side and the residential side, how do you change your pricing? How do you structure your pricing between both sides of the industry? You know, this is something that has been a challenge since the very beginning. How to structure out proposals, how to invoice. Um, because it's tough to understand how much time it's going to take to do something that is custom that you haven't done before. Uh, and you know, the other challenge, as I'm sure you know, working in, a, in the custom world is that no project is the same, right? So we're always, every project is different, which is really exciting because it keeps my team really happy. They're, they're constantly, you know, problem solving and being creative with designs or building but it's not like you can plug it in a square footage calculator like a roofer, right? You can't just say, okay, we're doing this roof, here's the price for that. So, you know, we spend a ton of time on proposals and, and over the years, what we found is that what works the best is to be really transparent and lay everything out there. So, you know, our proposals show each of the materials that we're gonna be using, it shows how many hours of woodworking, how many hours of metalworking, finishing, assembly, installation, design, um, and really kind of showing those numbers so that somebody can say, oh wow, it's gonna take them eight hours to design this, or you know, 64 hours of woodworking. Um, and then we also show our markup on that, you know, that, that the total of labor plus materials, we do a 15%, you know, industry standard overhead and profit markup. And that has been probably the best way that we've been able to do proposals. And even, you know, there's really no difference between how we do it between commercial and residential. Um, the commercial projects just take way, way longer to work up a proposal for. You're looking at 200 plus pages of architectural drawings, whereas the residential, you know, we got some measurements for a wall that a built-in needs to go in. We know how many sheets of plywood, how much hardwood, how many gallons of paint, approximately how many hours of woodworking and installation. Um, and so those are tend to go a lot faster. But, you know, just generally speaking, we, we do a lot of proposals and out of everything we send out, we probably retain maybe 30% of the projects we actually give proposals for. So... That's tough, and I, I found that in the beginning it was it was pretty difficult to to lose jobs so frequently. Um, but as we've grown and and you know gotten better at working these numbers and figuring out what works, we've we've grown to accept that you know not everybody is going to either be willing to pay the premium cost it it is to work with a custom fabricator or you know our lead time, which is another challenge, you know, getting your lead times to a reasonable time frame that people are interested in, in waiting on. Um, but yeah, I, I would say that the proposal aspect and the pricing aspect is, is super difficult. And I've, you know, it's one of those things where 
you really have to have a good understanding of how to build something, what materials to use, and how long it's going to take. And over the years, we've just continuously dialed that in. We've changed our formatting on the proposals probably five times at this point. And now we're at a point where we feel really good about it, but it's not an easy task. That type of full transparency invoicing is not seen a lot in the industry. Do you think that you lose a lot of business doing it that way? Sending a fully transparent invoice or project proposal to clients and then they can just take that and shop it around to different contractors and of course the contractors are going to look at that and see all your numbers and say, oh yeah, I can just cut a corner here and, and save you some money. Oh, I'm sure that happens all the time. <laughs> But uh, that's kind of the nature of the business that we're in. Uh, what, what we've really found with the transparency aspect of it um, was a lot of trial and error. So, you know, at the beginning, somebody wanted a dining table or let's say a bar for the restaurant. You know, we would send them a really simple one page document that said dining table, you know, $7,000 or bar, $14,000. And a lot of the responses we got back were, oh my God, this is so expensive. Why does a dining table cost this much? Why does a bar cost this much? And so we, we really went through our proposal process and started thinking about, okay, well, you know, one of the problems we have right now is that anybody can go online and find a thousand, a million different coffee tables or dining tables or wet bars for their home. And all they see is that price. And so what we decided to do was actually show people, okay, you want a dining table? Well, you know, the slab is gonna cost this much. We're gonna use two sticks of steel. It's gonna take us 16 hours to weld up the space. It's gonna take us 32 hours to flatten sand and get this thing cleaned up and ready for finishing. And it's 16 to 20 hours to actually finish it. And you know, what we found is that there was a lot more understanding of our price point. There was. There was this kind of aha moment with our clients. And let me be clear, it's not true across the board. The people who really like that are the interior designers, the architects and the contractors. You know, some of these uh, residential homeowners, they may not necessarily care about the nitty gritty of how long it's going to take, but it allows them to see, you know, how much time we're really spending doing this project. And it's not just something that we're just throwing together. And there's a, another benefit to this as well that kind of came to our attention, which is when you lay everything out, people can see all the materials and the labor. If somebody says, I don't have you know, $7,000 to spend on the dining table, how can we make it cheaper? And instead of us just having a single number there and us trying to figure out, okay, how do we make it cheaper? We can say, all right, well, you wanted a walnut slab. Those are pretty expensive. Let's pick a different slab. You wanted brass legs for this table. Well, brass is expensive. Let's use steel or aluminum. Instead of doing a powder coat finish, let's do a paint finish. Um, you know, the, the, design you, the design you sent was a pretty complicated leg design. You know, let's decrease our metalworking hours by simplifying that. And then we can really work with them to manage the expectations of that product by them really seeing how you can decrease costs by choosing different materials and changing your fabrication methods. Very often we send a proposal out and then we'll have a request for a VE version, a value engineered version, which is something that is slightly less expensive materials and slightly simpler design. And so it really allows us to, instead of putting that 
burden on us of how to make it cheaper, we can share that burden with the customer and say, okay, do you want this to be less expensive? Let's work together to figure out what is acceptable to you that gets it to your price point. I actually didn't think that I was going to like this full transparency invoicing, but you, you're convincing me. I'm liking, I'm liking what I'm hearing. When do billable hours start for you on a project? Is it when the client contacts you and you start doing the project proposal? Or is it after they sign on for the project proposal and you actually have the project in hand? It is the second option there. We, we do work on proposals for free, as it were. Um, I, I'm kind of not about charging for proposals because it just feels a little odd to me to do that. Um, and it's tough too, because you you immediately start talking about invoicing and money before you even start the conversation about the project, right? So we work up our proposals, as, I guess, for free, as it were. Um, but, you know, we're also accounting for that time within our uh, project fee. So, you know, that back and forth is accounted for in our overhead. So we, we are covering the cost of the proposal but only for the projects that we actually get. And, you know, that can be tough when you spend, you know, a day on a proposal for a big project and you don't get it. That's, that's tough. But the goal is to be, you know, proficient enough at it that you get plenty of others. So it doesn't, it doesn't hurt you too much. But it's, um, I don't know, that's something I think that I've struggled with a lot. Uh, I've gotten really frustrated, honestly, just spending hours and hours and hours looking through stuff and drawings and specifications and, you know, setting up proposals out and then just never hearing back, even after following up. So I wouldn't, I don't know, it's tough. It, it's a difficult thing to do to do those proposals for free. But to answer your question, the, you know, the payment starts once the, the proposal is agreed upon and everybody's on the same page. And then we typically do like a 50% deposit, depending on the size of the project. Um, and once we do that, we engage in the design process. So one lesson that we definitely learned is that we don't design anything until we're in contract, because that, that can really get you. It's one thing to work up a proposal and spend hours on that um, and then not get a job. It's a whole different story to spend hours on a design and send it to the client and then not get the job. And they could potentially send it to somebody else to build what you just designed. So we always get into contract before we do any design work. Okay, that was my follow-up question. So your proposals are just numbers. They're not actually designs. You're not doing any renders or anything like that for the clients until you're getting paid. Right, and that, that's that's exactly right. But within that, we also, you know, when we're working with our client, we're, we're asking for inspiration images, dimensions, material choices. I'm really trying to get a big picture view of it so that, you know, internally, we, we have a pretty good idea of what the design will be. We're just not going to spend the time actually working on that design if we're not contracted for the project. And that's how we, you know, base our pricing off of, is really off of the, the dimensions, material specs, and the inspiration images. Your company is an interesting size. And I say that in the nicest possible way. When you think about a furniture company, you usually think about it in two ways. You think about one, a small, either one person, two person, three person shop, 
or you think about it as a big industrial building where you have a hundred people on assembly line and they're putting furniture together. You fall in a strange middle category with your size where you are a, a medium furniture business. Tell us a little bit about the structure of your business, how you grew it and the people behind it. Yeah, I think you're, you're spot on with being a, an interesting kind of, you know, definitely a small business, but larger than the, the, just the guys who are, have a small shop and doing it and much smaller than the big manufacturers. Um, so we have 12 full-time employees. Um, most of them are college educated and have either studied woodworking or furniture design. Um, and they're all career-oriented furniture makers. This is what they want to be doing. And it took probably three years to, for me to really understand the value of that. Because at the beginning, we, you know, we hired people who needed jobs, who needed to work, who wanted to make some money and, you know, also wanted to work with their hands. But they weren't necessarily career-oriented towards that. And that doesn't really produce a culture of ownership in the studio. It doesn't, you don't have people who really, really care about the work that they're doing and have an understanding that what you're working on is, is gonna be, you know, an heirloom piece for somebody's home that they're gonna pass down generation to generation. And now we have a team that really understands that and really takes ownership over that work. They. They care about it. They spend the right amount of time on the details, on the designs, um, and just on the on the project as a whole. And structure-wise, that is another big learning curve. So at the beginning, I was very much of the mindset of, we're all in this together. Like, there's no hierarchy. We can all work on everything, and it's going to be great. The reality is it doesn't work. Um, it works for a team of three to four for sure, everybody's bouncing around. Um, but in reality, as you grow into a team of 12, you need structure. You have to have some sort of structure in place, some way to make sure that, you know, top down people know what's going on. We know what projects we're doing. We know what we're working on that day. And about three years ago, I decided to, to really remove myself from the day-to-day in-studio fabrication. I realized that I wasn't actually being helpful. I was just getting in the way because I was trying to micromanage people's daily tasks and 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 ultimately I was, I was actually slowing projects down instead of moving them forward. And so at that point, we decided to um, have a studio director and that's Thomas. And Thomas is a total ace. He's, he's great. He studied furniture design at SCAD and he he's extremely skilled builder but he's also great with people and he's a great manager so Thomas really runs day-to-day shop everything really so he makes sure that all the team members know what they're doing that week that day he's their go-to person for questions about details and fabrication techniques um, he's really patient and he understands how to build anything which is great um and so that was really the first step into creating structure and then you know as we grew our team um i kind of realized that we also needed more of that so 
We also have Jamie, who is our assistant studio director. So he's an incredibly skilled woodworker, but he's like Thomas's right-hand man. So he really is the one who's running the wood shop um, while Thomas is running the whole studio. And then we also have Peter, who's our metalworking manager. So now he's totally managing metal, anything metalworking. And we have Craig, who is our finishing manager. So we really have these kind of departments, if you will. I don't like to use that word departments because it makes us sound like a big manufacturer. Um, but what I found is that not only does it help with communication and people, you know, our assistants know who to talk to about what, but it also creates even more ownership over that work. You know, like Peter and metalworking, he owns that. Everything that goes through there, he's working on. He's the, basically the lead metalworker on all of those things. And the, the, the last piece of the puzzle that I found to be really beneficial not only to our you know business logistical workflow but also my own health and sanity is we brought on JJ who is our operations manager and JJ is great they're incredibly organized and focused and JJ really focuses on correspondence with clients emailing working up proposals for me to then approve to send out uh, making sure we have all the materials that we need coordinating closely with Thomas so that we're never down any materials and that we always have the things we need in stock. Because that, I was doing that before. I was the one who was making sure that all the emails were going out. And really Mike, too, when Mike was within the company, he was really big on the, the correspondence and the emails and the, and the business side of things. Um, but when Mike left, I realized that, that we really needed somebody to handle a lot of the just the, the work that keeps projects coming in, which is proposals, and keep projects moving in the shop, which is materials and um, just like an understanding of drawings and design. So now I'm at a point where the shop can basically run without me in there, and JJ can really handle the correspondence and the emails, so I can focus on the important things, which are growing the business, making sure all of our licenses and insurance and payroll and all that stuff is totally taken care of. And, and that's been a huge, huge help because anybody who has their own furniture company, I'm sure struggles with that work-life balance and it can be really, really tough. Well, I, I don't know how else to say it besides that just sounds like a really well-run company. You've weathered the storms of being a small business where you had to take on all those roles yourself and you came out stronger for it. And now you can delegate those tasks to people that you're hiring. And it sounds like you very much invested back into your employees and hired the right people for the right job. I appreciate that because you're right. It is a hard thing to do because anybody who's making furniture, they, they care a lot about it for the most part. And it's really hard to, to trust other people to, to do that work and do it well. Um, and, you know, we've got a really, really good team. And, and, and I appreciate you saying that because it, 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 is, it is finally starting to feel like a well-run company, which is a, a dream, right? I'm, obviously, there's always improvements to make, but we're getting there for sure. We're, we're really getting there. People want to think that a furniture business is equal parts creative and business, but the truth is that it's, it's not. 
Maybe at the beginning, when you're starting out, you get recognition for your artistic merit and that sets you apart. But as the business progresses, you realize that there are a lot of people who can make nice things, beautiful things even. But when you want to grow and you realize you're going against other companies that are all fighting for the same thing, the way to survive is having the business side at the forefront. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that the creative side doesn't play into it at all. Uh, for my own company, I view it as an incredibly creative-driven company, but that is the design side of the company. And I see the design side all under the umbrella of the business side of the company. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's really tough at the beginning because like any entrepreneur, you're really doing everything, right? I'm, as you well know, you're doing the social media and you're also doing the building and you're also doing the insurance and the licenses and all that stuff. And to get to a point where you have a team that you trust enough that you can um, delegate those tasks out in a positive way that is really beneficial to the company as a whole and, and really everybody having an understanding of that, that you know we're all in this together and we're moving in the same direction and everything we do is for the benefit of the company. It's one of those things that feels really great once you get it locked in, but you know, it takes a really long time. You know, they say that five year mark is a real, is a real goalpost for small businesses that if you do make it to being in business for five years, you're much more likely to succeed. And, you know, we hit that a um, little over a year and a half ago. And, and even at that point, I was like, oh man, we got a lot of improvements to make, but you know, we're, we're at a point now where I'm starting to see that, that change. Um, and you know, the reality is, is, is furniture making is not the most lucrative business. Also, it's, the margins are tight. Materials are expensive. Hiring good people is expensive. So, you know, understanding what your costs are, how much you need to charge for a project, um, and what your overhead is, is a complicated, complicated thing that I found it, it just took years to get a grasp on it and even at this point we're still working on it it's not it's not it's definitely not hammered out but um i think having a team that is focused on constant improvement really helps with that now i just want to touch on something really quickly and i'm only going to do it quickly because i know that it's a giant topic and one that we could have a whole independent episode on but it is at the core of your business practices from really the, the very beginning, so we should note it. And that is sustainability, both environmentally and in your community. And for you, it's not just pretty words. You've really made it a statement of how you do business. You've won awards for it, had a lot of recognition, and it's something that we should all applaud. You've really taken a stand with your environmental impact, but like I said, you have also taken a stand within your community. Give us a quick overview of some of the things you're involved in to give back. The nonprofits we work with are really great. LA Green Poor, Liberty's Kitchen, Youth Empowerment Project. Um, they're all they're all so focused on improving the lives of the youth in our city. And you know, we're grateful just to have the opportunity to take part in that. It's it's really, really important to us. And we're glad that we we can do that because it matters. The economy in New Orleans, like we were talking about, is very much uh, locally centered. People want to spend money here and as a as a local business we also try to do that same thing 
it doesn't happen 100% of the time, but when we can, we absolutely prioritize local suppliers, local vendors, other fabricators, so that we can support the local economy. You know, we've injected over two and a half million dollars directly into the local economy over the past six years, whether it's through other vendors we work with or material suppliers or um, just employees. Um, th that makes a really big difference too. Keeping that money local is, is incredibly important. The more I learn about your sustainable business practices, the more impressed I am, honestly. I know we touched on this topic quickly, so if there are people out there who want to learn more about what you do in the shop, there are articles covering the topic, and I'm sure if they reached out to you to learn more, even though you are a busy guy, you could probably share some tips that they could use in their own shops. You are, by all measures, a success in this industry. Now, I know you'll fight me when I say it, because one, you're a humble person, and two, there's just something about furniture makers that they can't accept compliments. It doesn't matter how beautiful a piece of furniture is that they make, they'll uh, only ever want to talk about the parts that they messed up on it. I get it, I'm a furniture maker too, and I do the same thing. But in reality, you are, you are a success. Your story is one that we could all learn from. What is some advice that you could give to someone out there? Someone, say, without a 12-person team. Someone without your years of experience. Someone who's just trying to make it in this industry. What a great question. Um, <laughs> that's a, it's also a tough question. Um, you're right about the, like, the criti critical aspect. We're, we're so very critical of ourselves. Um, and I think that's because we care so much. Um, what advice I could offer to people who are thinking about getting into this is think long and hard about it. Make sure this is something you want to do because you do need to have the passion for it. Um, it's, not, it's not easy at the beginning. It's not easy for us now, um, but if you care enough about doing this work, then that's going to show in your work, and, and really that's what matters, producing really high quality work that people want, that they're willing to spend money on, that they're not only willing to spend money on, but they're willing to spend more on supporting you as a maker than they would on you know something that they can just order online you have to get yourself into a position where the quality of your work is in a place that people are willing to spend a little bit more money and i think that that's a really key thing we've always focused on the quality of our work like i said before you know here at goodwood we're really all in this together we're all moving in the same direction and we all really care about the work that we're doing and that is key producing quality products which is what people want in a furniture company jordan thank you thank you so much for your time thank you so much for your knowledge thank you for sharing it with us it's been a hard road for you to get to where you are but your success was well earned and i appreciate you sharing everything that you've learned with us absolutely ethan this was this was a pleasure and i'm glad i got to get on here and, and kind of give some insight into the nitty gritty parts of, of having a furniture company because I, I don't think people really understand this part of it. And I think this podcast is a great thing to just give people more insight into what it really means and what it takes to run a successful furniture company and, you know, also have a life. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much for saying that. And I look forward to doing a lot more of these shows and helping a lot more people out. 
thanks so much for your time and I wish you all the success moving forward. Thank you so much, Ethan. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at TheBuildWithEthan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoy it, and thanks so much for listening.